Well, I want to extend a warm welcome to all of our friends that are here in person. I know we may have a number of friends that are watching online too. And like has been said, this is kickoff Sunday. And I'm doing my best to kind of get in the spirit of the day. I'm wearing this custom ironed on uh, <laughs> Vikings purple Westwood jersey. And uh, the, uh, the film team kind of helped me put this together because we recorded a little video of, it was like a dude perfect type video. My kids think I'm so cool uh, <laughs> after that. And, you know, the intent was to encourage everyone, inspire everyone to be part of today. And boy, look, it works. I mean, people are here. It's fun to see you all. And, you know, today's a, it's like a momentum building day. It's a day where I pray you say yes to greater connection, greater belonging here at Westwood. And, you know, that's what kind of the season is. You know, it's, it's a renewed season in so many ways. And new things are kicking off all over us. It's back to school season. And uh, our family is entering into that now with two school-age children. Uh, we have a, a, every Monday or every, every weekday, I drop off a second grader and a kindergartner now. And my wife drops off a preschooler later on in the day. And then we only have one left at home which is kind of like a young parent's version of being an empty nester. It's like, boy, <laughs> what will it feel like again when we have our days back to ourselves? But uh, so that, that's happening maybe in many of your lives. Uh, many groups or activities are maybe reforming all around you. And I'm wearing Vikings purple. I mean, football kicks off today as well, maybe in just an hour or so. And, uh, you know, I was very unfamiliar with American football being an immigrant to this country. I came to the United States in 1996 from Durban, South Africa. And the first, and I knew football as soccer, right? So my first introduction to American football was, well, that looks kind of like rugby. And um, the first time I watched the sport was a Vikings game. And it was the home opener for a season that I'll never forget. And the year was 1998. So some of you who are Vikings fans know about this infamous season. I mean, this team had it all. And this was the highest scoring offense. I think at the time it had dynamic rookie Randy Moss. It had an opportunistic defense and it had an almost perfect kicker. <laughs> and it looked like a team that was going to do it. Hoist the Lombardi trophy, but... They fell short. They lost to this scrappy Atlanta Falcons team in the playoffs, a team I've never liked ever since. And, uh, you know, little did I know that that would not be my first time feeling heartache as a Vikings fan. <laughs> but every year I come back and my hopes are high and I say, this could be our year. This could be our year. And I'm sure many of you can kind of relate to that, right? I mean, sports, this experience we have with it, it can be a thrill for us. It can bring some heartache. And, um, you know, even if you're a diehard fan, if you're a player or a coach, sometimes if you're just a casual onlooker, I mean, sports can just draw you in as you see what's unfolding. And, you know, I think about this, families, friends, even complete strangers come together for sports. I, anytime I go to a sporting event and my team's the one to make a jaw-dropping play, and here I am high-fiving, and I'm hugging people, and then I realize, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> but we're, we're united. We're in this together. It's the shared experience. There's this thrill that comes when we're winning, when maybe momentum is on our side. And, you know, I, I say all that to say sports, it can maybe give us a window into our very souls. 
And it's almost like we're, we're wired to ride the waves of momentum that are around us. And hopefully those waves take us to places where we're making a difference, where we're leaving a mark, where, I don't know, we're finding a path to victory. And I, I just want to qualify that by saying, you know, as Christians, for those of us who follow Jesus, I, I don't mean to say that life is all about winning. Because I think we need to be careful that maybe the thrill or the excitement of winning doesn't leave us in places where maybe we try to step on or on top of people for our own achievements, our own accolades. We got to be careful not to fall into that ditch. But if we were to do that well, I, I think we can acknowledge there's, there's something in us that wants to ride the wave of momentum, that wants to make a difference. And, and I think the world needs it. Because how many know it, it feels like other forces, other kinds of momentum seem to be winning more than they should right now? Now, doesn't it feel like division wins a little bit more over unity than it should? Or that pessimism can win over hope? Or that greed can win over generosity? You know, and, and if those ways of momentum keep going, we could land in some pretty unsettling places. And, and so maybe a question that we can ask on this sports-themed kickoff Sunday is, how do we turn the tide? Or maybe another way to ask it, if we could ride the wave of God's momentum, where could that take us? And if we did all that together, what would that look like? And to answer some of those questions, I, I think it's always nice to look at the stories of momentum that came before us. And so we're going to look at the example of the first Christians. And they rode God's momentous spirit to a pretty compelling and inspiring place. And I think as we dive into their story that you'll also feel encouraged that we can go to some similar places. Now, the story of the early church, it's, tall, it's told in a book called Acts. Acts is actually volume two of a two-part series. The first is called Luke because both were written by the same man. So Luke was asked by a, uh, probably a wealthy Christian at the time, he was commissioned to write down the story of Jesus and the world-altering community that kind of emerged after his resurrection because some, some people were hearing the story and they were, they were astounded. Did it really happen like that? Is, is that what really went on? And so Luke wrote volume one, the book called Luke, the story of Jesus, and then he wrote volume two, a book we know as Acts, to tell the story of the church that emerged afterwards. And, you know, Luke had an important question as he was writing. He, similar to many of the other people in the ancient times, they were wondering how in the world did an unschooled and kind of divided group of disciples, following a guy that is from the northern edge of Judea, kind of a no man's land, that same guy was crucified on a Roman cross. How did all of that become a movement that spread into all in the world? How did that happen? You know, I think you could call that a story for the ages. In sports, we would call that an underdog story. You know, how, how did the unexpected happen? How did the obvious not happen? I asked this question with tears in my eyes in 1998. <laughs> how did the 15-1 Vikings miss the Super Bowl and those dirty bird Atlanta Falcons get in? <laughs> now, I know the Packer fans have a response, and, but thankfully that's not our question today. Um, again, remember, our question is, how did the underdog Jesus movement come to impact billions of people? How did it come to impact you, those in this room and those that are watching online? 
It's a question that not only we've asked, historians have asked it for many, many years. And, you know, historians aren't necessarily interested in assigning any of that to the goodness and the providence of God. How? But you think of Luke, if you read his story, that's his conclusion. How did this happen? Only God. Only God could be behind such a story for the ages. And God infused momentum. It had to begin somewhere. And Luke identifies that very moment in the words of Jesus himself. It's recorded in a verse that may be very familiar to those of you who call Westwood home, Acts 1.8. That verse anchors are here near far vision. And here's the words of Jesus. As recorded in Acts, Jesus says, but you, circle that you, that you is a plural you. It's you all. It's a community. But you all will receive power, God-infused momentum, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, this promise, it's almost like a thesis statement for the book of Acts because what unfolds after that promise is exactly what is stated there. The momentum of God's church begins in Jerusalem. 3,000 people added in one day. And then persecution breaks out and the church scatters to Judea and to Samaria, to the surrounding regions. And then a guy named Paul shows up on the scene and he takes the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And today, billions of people, people just like you, follow Jesus. But the uh, American sociologist, his name's Rodney Stark, he said, there's got to be more to the story than that. How did this really happen? Well, he published a book on his take about 2,000 years after Luke and Acts. About early 90s is when this book came out, and here's the title. He wrote, The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement Became the Dominant Religious Force in the Western World in a Few Centuries. Talk about a subtitle. (laughs) So what was his conclusion? How did this underdog story come about? Well, what Stark did is he decided to study the people of the early church, looking at the historical record. What were they like? And he discovered something fascinating. The people of the early church were actually being and loving like Jesus. And because they were, Others were so enthralled by their lives that they decided to follow Jesus, too. And so Stark finds three key dimensions of these earliest Christians that he unpacks in his very long book. But I've summarized it for you in three points. So here's the first thing. Stark noted that these earliest Christians were radically for God and for his love. And so what they did is they welcomed and protected the most vulnerable people in society, women and children. You know, this was not common in the era of the first, second, and third centuries. Uh, Pagan religion was kind of the dominant force, and child sacrifice and abortion were very, very common practices. So Christians, they did not engage in that. They were not interested in being uh, a part of those kinds of patterns of behavior, and uh, so they didn't engage. And you know what happened is they had a pretty significant reproductive advantage. Christians had a lot of big families. And as a result, their faith grew in number. These ancient cultures were also very patriarchal. 
Uh, they were very maybe male-centered or male-dominated. And so as a result, uh, women were sadly pushed further and further to the margins of society. And Christians, on the other hand, they practiced kind of a countercultural embrace of women. And they included women in their worship, in, even in leadership at times. And so maybe unsurprisingly, women felt so included and part of the community that a disproportionate number of women were actually part of the early church. They felt seen. They were welcomed. They were embraced. They were loved. So that was Stark's first conclusion. They were for God. They were for the most vulnerable. And the second thing that Stark noted is that these earliest Christians were committed to being radically like Jesus, especially in how they engaged with persecution. The earliest Christians were living at times where they were very misunderstood people. They were often maligned by their pagan counterparts. In fact, they were accused of cannibalism because they practiced eating the body and drinking the blood of their Savior, Jesus. They were also thought to be uh, practicing incest because they kept calling everybody brother and sister. And so these practices that you and I engage in, communion, the love that we share for one another, they were not understood by their pagan counterparts. And then Christians would do things like say, Jesus is king, which was seen as a direct assault to the authority of Caesar himself. And so some Christians were murdered. They were martyred for their faith in Jesus. And onlookers watched as these Christians died very public deaths. And as that was happening, they were praying for their captors. And an onlooking world was amazed that that was actually possible. And so they started to take the Jesus movement seriously. So the Stark noted they were like Jesus in some pretty compelling ways. And the third thing, final thing that Stark noted is a pretty compassionate trend of earliest Christians in a time that may sound very familiar to ours during a global pandemic. There are actually two around the first, second, and third centuries. One in AD 65, another happened in AD 251. And these were pretty horrific pandemics. About a third of the Roman Empire, Roman Empire's population died during each of them. And Christians stood out because they were radically in community. In one sense, they were planted in the communities that they were. Many people fled to less, po uh, less densely populated areas, but the Christians remained because they wanted to care for the sick. And they wanted to support those that had lost loved ones. And as they practiced their community in that community, they did that in a very together type way. They pooled their resources. They would share things with one another. They would encourage each other in the faith. And what happened, unsurprisingly, is they were better able to cope with the pain and with the hardship that was happening all around them. And other people were noticing that Christians were actually able to make it through. And they thought, Maybe we should follow them too. And so the third thing Stark noted is these Christians were in community. And isn't that pretty amazing? Here you have a secular historian. He's trying to figure out how in the world did this Jesus movement become the thing all over the world? And he concludes that it won in the most dire of situations. It survived things like assaults and persecution and violence and disease and marginalization. Well, actually, maybe it did more than survive. It actually thrived in that harsh, uncertain environment. It won from St Stark's vantage point because the earliest Christians were committed to being a people for God, 
like Jesus, in community. And so in the face of a society that maybe was not championing the things of God and the people of God, the earliest Christians said, we're going to protect the most vulnerable that are among us. Or in a culture war that was escalating and wanting Christians to fight fire with fire, the earliest Christians said, no, we're, we're going to go the way of Jesus. We're going to turn the other cheek in our persecution. We're going to be gentle and humble as we navigate our world. In the face of a global pandemic, the earliest Christians took a posture that said, no, we're going to stay and care. We're going to be in community and we're going to be together. And as they did that, God added to their number daily those who were floored that this was actually possible that you could stare down death and have compassion, that you could lose a loved one and still have hope, that you could win over your enemies even though they defeat you. That's how Christianity won over all the other pressures and worldviews and obstacles of the ancient world. The earliest Christians won their way to life and life to the fullest by being a people for God, like Jesus, in community. And may that be our way as well in our modern world, and oh, how similar it can sound to our ancient brothers and sisters, in a society that maybe doesn't always champion God's love, in a culture war that may egg us on to belittle one another, in the throes of a pandemic that tempts us to fear and isolation, may, maybe that's why it does feel like other forces win more than they should. Maybe that's why we ourselves are tempted to go about our Christian life by being and loving like someone other than Jesus. Being and loving like our maybe favorite political pundit or social media influencer or podcaster or author or world leader. The list could go on and on and it begs the question, whose momentum are we really riding? And where is it taking us? You know, my intent in offering some of those questions, I'm not here to make a jab at anybody. I'm, I don't want to put a pessimistic taste in your mouth. I, but I, if you were with us last week, it's just this acknowledgement that we can wander in our faith and our allegiances and in our influences. And that may be especially likely when the environments around us are confusing or difficult. But we serve a gracious God. And God says you can always recalibrate you can always move in a new direction. And as we do that, like the earliest Christians, when we commit to being a people that is for God, like Jesus in community, our lives, they become contagious. We become the called out people of God. And we have a beautiful mission that's in front of us. You know, I love what the famed missiologist Alan Hirsch says. He says it like this. It's not that the church has a mission. It's that the mission of God has a church. And at Westwood, you know, I, I think we like to say that the mission of God is for us to be in love like Jesus in community. It's why we're Westwood Community Church. Because when we do this together, people do notice. That's the arc of the, of the church's story from the beginning through the first and second centuries into today. People notice. And momentum will build. And that inspires a world to realize we need that too. We need, we need to also step into the life that is meant for us, a life that's for God, like Jesus, in community. It's how Luke described the first Christians in Acts 2. Luke writes, 
They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then this great line, and the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. What a picture. It's a people for God, like Jesus, in community, They came together. They were regularly together for worship, for prayer, for service, for communion. They were a people that were devoted to knowing God and following in his ways. They had momentum. It was touched off by the coming of the Holy Spirit, and it just kept going because they did the little things right. They were with Jesus. They were like Jesus. They were wanting to love like him too. And then a band of 11 disciples grew to about 150 after the resurrection, then then to 3,000 at Pentecost in Jerusalem. Then again, persecution breaks out and thousands more become followers of Jesus as the church is scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and then billions to the very ends of the earth now know him as the Lord and Savior and you are counted in part of that story too. I mean, that's the power of momentum right there. And for Christians, we believe the victory is only beginning. Because as Christians, we look forward to a day when even the most intimidating of opponents, death itself, will bow to the resurrection power of God. It's this hope that sustained really the earliest Christians in all that they were walking through. Their belief, their unwavering conviction that they would rise above it all It helped them navigate through some of the toughest challenges of the world. And just like Jesus, death would not get the last word in their stories. You know, talk about an underdog story right there. That may be the ultimate underdog story. Even though we die, we live. That's the power of momentum. You know, this promise of resurrection, it's uh, it's been a very personal promise for me over the last month or so. And I shared this with our church family. If you're newer to Westwood, uh, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit personal with you to, to let you know that my uh, mom passed away on August 17th. So just a few weeks ago. And I've, I've shared that with some of our church families. Some of you may be familiar with that news. And uh, she was 62 years old. And she, about five years ago, she was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. And uh, if you know some of that diagnosis, it basically means your, your heart's ability to pump blood throughout your body just gets weaker and weaker. And, uh, you know, and a lot of things can maybe factor in or contribute to that. But what, so whatever it is that concocted together, my mom, um, it was evident. My mom was having a tough time. It, ha- it was taking a toll on her body. And she, you know, things like walking around, moving around, it was harder for her to do those things. Sometimes she would get these episodes where she would cough because there would be liquid or fluid building up in her lungs. The, basically, you know, she had, a, she had a rough go. But, you know, immigrant family, she, she pushed. You know, she wanted to see the grandkids. She wanted to make memories, all of these things. And, um, you know, she was an amazing person, very kind, generative. 
And she, she was just going to be that person as long as she could. And about a month ago or so, her, her body was at a place where it was in a really compromised state. And she went into the doctors, and the doctors said, you know, we have to admit you to the hospital. Your, your heart's in such a compromised state that I think the only way you're going to leave this hospital is with a new heart. You need a heart transplant. And my mom raised her hand, and she said, if that's the journey, then we're going to walk down that path together. So she said yes. She, want, she wanted to save her life. And so about a week before she passed on August 10th, uh, she went in for a surgery that was supposed to kind of help sustain her heart as we waited. It's kind of a waiting game to wait for a new heart. And um, that surgery just did not go like anyone was hoping it would go. Her body was already pretty strained. And as the surgery was unfolding, they, the doctors had to go into an emergency mode. And uh, they took her up to life support. And then they called us and said, you need to pray. If you're a praying people, you need to pray. And um, my mom never woke up from that point. And in the week that followed, you know, her body was, her body was saying, I need to go. Uh, she almost lost a leg. Her, she had to go on dialysis because her kidneys were failing. And my dad is there in Baltimore because well, they lived out on the East Coast. So that's where my mom was at Johns Hopkins Hospital. And my sister lives in Seattle and I live in Minneapolis. So then we flew down there. And you end up in this, you know, a situation you never think about doing where it became evident that these machines could maybe keep my mom going for maybe a decent period of time. And we had to make this profound, yet at the same time, very confusing decision of, no, but I, I, think, she, I think we need to let her go. I think she needs to pass into peace. And the nurses, uh, you know, we came to a family decision on that, and the nurses were super kind, and they said, well, l let's play her favorite music. And uh, she was a Casting Crowns fan, so that was the uh, <laughs> music that was kind of reverberating through the hospital room. And then, and then you just have this surreal moment where... The monitors shut off, and the noises stop going. You know, it's, and she passed into peace. And there was this piece of me that happened, when that happened on August 17th, that was so thankful because all the limitations that she was walking through, she is now in the presence of Jesus. She's fully healed. But then there's this sense that she's not there anymore. And her love and her tenderness and our conversations, it, it ended that day too. And, and that's the sting of death, isn't it? That death leaves both a mark and a void all at the same time. And, and I've journeyed through for the last month or so, you know, my own kind of grieving and mourning and processing through all that. And, and I just want to share two things with, with you all that have surfaced in me. And the first thing is, I just don't know how I could have done it without a faith in Jesus, a faith in a God that's good and that's gracious and that it, 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 faith was kind of like an anchor for me in the nights where you're restless and you're tossing and you're turning or when your heart's so heavy or, or when your mind is swirling and you're like, what if this, and why this? Faith's been an anchor for me. And, and the second thing that I'll share with you is this church, it's been a lifeline for me. You know, we've, uh, we've been at Westwood 13 months. And what happened in one month accelerated for us to be family in like a whole new way. I considered buying another freezer because of all the food that was brought to us. <laughs> it was, we, we were just showered 
with love and support and care. And, you know, the reflection for me has been, how, how do you do it without that? How do you do it without an anchor and without a lifeline? And I think the conclusion I draw to is, I don't think you can. I, it's too, it, feels dis, it feels too disorienting, too painful, too confusing. It feels a lot like the macro settings of those first, second, and third century Christians where people were not for God. People were not like Jesus. People were not in communities. Maybe the settings we feel like we live in in the 21st century. Other forces sometimes win more than they should, shouldn't they? But remember our question today is, how do we turn the tide? How do we ride the spirit and the wave of God's momentum? And I think what I've learned in this last month and what I want to offer to you is I don't think you can do it alone. I think the only way you kind of ride the momentum to where we want to go as a people is when we open ourselves up to being for God, like Jesus, in community. And I think it's that, it's that last one for me that I, it's kind of been seared into my soul in this last month. Because when we start to do that, when we start to live in community, you know, we'll, we'll start to let our guard down. We, we'll, we'll figure out that life is not just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and try to make it all. You know, we'll be less tempted to go about being and loving like someone other than Jesus when we're anchored and connected to one another. And instead, we, we'll do things like ask for prayer. We'll receive help when it comes our way. We'll trust God even in the mysteries of life. We'll walk in gentleness and humility, and we'll hold on to this hope like those earliest Christians that we will rise above it all in and through the way of Jesus. And so it's this profound, radical commitment to live for God like Jesus in community it took the earliest Christians to an amazing place because the rest of the world was disintegrating into despair and into disease. And people were like, well, we might as well give the be in love like Jesus thing a shot. And as they did that in community, nothing could stop their momentum. And so remember, this is kickoff Sunday. This is your day. It's your day to step into community. Because I just want to, I have an invitation for you. And that's, would you join us in this community? I mean, you're in our church, no doubt about that. But as you know, you could be in church and not in the community. You can be here and still maybe not be part of sharing in the life of the people around you. Participating in what we at Westwood call living with open hands. Gratefully receiving from God and joyfully giving it away receiving when you're in need and giving to others when they're in need too. Our family has just experienced the beautiful wonder of Christian community. I think it was life-altering for us. And I'm telling you, in, in the face of life's uncertainties and troubles, my encouragement to you is to not face that without a community around you yourself. And so today is your day. Today maybe to join a group. Today to become a member. Today to sign up, maybe to volunteer with our kids or students. Maybe it's your day to commit to saying, I'm going to come back next Sunday. 
Maybe it's your day to reach out to a pastor, to send in a prayer request, to give a gift, whatever it might be. This community needs you. And may I be so bold as to say you need it too. You may not feel like that now, but the winds and the waves, they come in our lives sometimes unexpectedly. And like those earliest Christians, they were poised to thrive in the darkest of days because they were a people for God, like Jesus, in community. And they won with the odds stacked against them because the momentum of God was on their side. And I know I'm a pastor and I know I'm biased because I'm at Westwood, but can I tell you, it's on our side too. I mean, we say it a lot, God is on the move. And I see it every day, I see it every Sunday. And so may we ride that wave of goodness toward life as it was always meant to be. It's not a life without trouble. It's not a life without hardship. But it's a life that will endure it all because it's a life that commits to being for God, like Jesus, in community. And with that, I uh, invite you to open your hands with me and I want to pray a blessing over each of you. So Lord, thanks for this time to be together. Kickoff Sunday. So many things happening around us and I'm thinking of Pastor Joel's Opening words, a God prompting, a nudge, a fact, the fact that you're moving toward us. God, right now, we're ready to receive that. Our hands are open. It's a posture that says, whatever you are asking for us to do next, to be part of this community, may we have the courage to say yes, knowing not only what it does for this body, knowing in a profound way what it will do for us our anchor and our lifeline for God, like Jesus in community, for you, like your son together. May that be our call. May May that be our life from this point forward. And may a needing world be so inspired that they too join the goodness of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We pray that right now in the name that is above every name, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.